6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Psalms, chapter 119, verses 1 through 72. Well, tonight we have an ambitious task because we're going to just take one psalm tonight, but it happens to be Psalm 119, which is the longest psalm in the Bible, 176 verses. And so to give you some example, uh, the, the classic treatise on the book of Psalms is Charles Spurgeon's The Treasury of David. And he spends 400 pages just on this psalm. So I, can't, I couldn't, if I, even if I chose to, I could even summarize his particular perspective. So it's obviously going to be uh, sort of superficial, an introduction, but uh, we hope you find it interesting. Now, it is an acrostic psalm, and uh, an acrostic psalm, there's a handful of them in the Scripture. This one is distinctive, and in it, in it, isn't, it isn't that each verse starts with a different Hebrew letter through the 20, 22 letters. Each group of eight uh, verse, uh, verses starts with the same Hebrew letter, and uh, it's a quatrain or an octave, if you will. And some, so it has 22 sections each one consisting of eight verses, uh, as, in other words, one for each of the Hebrew letters in the Bible. Some people say there's 27 letters because five of those letters have a different final form, but that's a whole other thing. They generally regarded the Hebrew alphabet as 22 letters. And so there's 16 lines in eight couplets that make up each verse. In other words, two lines per verse that gives you eight verses, all starting with the same letter in the order of the Hebrew alphabet. And so... And the, the Yod-Heh-Vav-Heh, the unpronounceable name of God, also occurs 22 times, but not necessarily consecutively that way. Now, authorship, there's lots of discussion about this. Most commentaries take for granted that this is a psalm of David, and it can be viewed that way as many good commentators see it. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, for an example, uh, in Treasury of David, takes that for granted also. And so does uh, Herbert Lockyer, which has written one of the most definitive uh, devotional uh, uh, commentaries on the book of Psalms. Uh, he also takes for granted that it's David. But there are other views, and the truth of the matter is we don't know who really wrote it. There are other speculations. Some even say Moses, but that seems quite doubtful. For, there's a number of arguments against that. There are many that see it as a post-exile document. They suspect that it was written by a priest, someone very familiar with the insider of the Hebrew uh, worship, a second temple priest, after, after it fell. In other words, during the Babylonian captivity. This is another speculation, either during or after. Wearsby, who does a number of wonderful commentaries, suggests the possibility uh, that it was Jeremiah, because then again it would be exile or post-exile. He was a priest and a prophet and so forth. He has his reasons. And uh, it clearly... From the psalm as we go through it, it was a very high-profile person. 
It wasn't just a casual writer. Uh, he has direct opposition to other rulers, in both Jewish and non-Jewish. There's no mention of the sanctuary, which is strange, or to sacrifices specifically, or to any priestly ministry. So that's a mystery too, in terms of trying to figure out where this was written. The prominent characters that emerge in this psalm is, of course, God. He's sometimes speaking and sometimes speaking toward. Uh, there's also a godly remnant, of course, alluded to in the psalm. The psalmist himself, of course, is alluded to. But also many times the ungodly people, that although they were born into the covenant relationship, disdained the law and were disobedient, and persecuted and falsely accused the psalmist. So you can see David being falsely accused. Jeremiah, of course, was imprisoned. There's all kinds of people that try to draw inferences. The Jeremiah view surprised me because that's a little unusual, but it's interesting because certainly in verse 9, the purpose of the psalmist was to encourage disciples and the context could easily be after the destruction of the temple, which would fit Jeremiah very well. And he was a priest as well as a prophet. He spoke with kings, as the, the psalmist certainly did, and Jeremiah had spoken with five different kings contemporaneously. And uh, he bore reproach for his faithfulness, the psalmist did, that is. He was surrounded by lawless critics. He was imprisoned for his outspoken declarations. And he wept over the national decline. All of these things describe the psalmist that writes the psalm, they also happen to describe Jeremiah. Does that mean he wrote it? Not necessarily, but I think it's useful if for no other reason that it, it separates us a little bit from the presumption it was necessarily David. We don't know who, who wrote it was. Ascribing it to David's not a problem. Most good scholars do. But I think it's healthy to have a, a broader uh, horizon. And so for what that's worth. Now the themes in this psalm bear in mind we're talking 22 sections of eight verses each, is primarily the practical use of the Word of God in the life of the believer. This is not a big theoretic thing. It's a very practical thing, a very committed thing. In fact, one of the shocks to me as I did my research is the discovery that so many people throughout history both secular kings and rulers as well as religious people in the church and so forth memorized many of the psalms, including Psalm 119. I can't imagine trying to undertake memorizing a 176-verse psalm. And yet I discover in the 17th and 18th century it was very common. Many of them were forced to memorize it by their parents onerously only to have it become their dearest possession. Many people who were men of the, of, of the word regarded the book of Psalms as their dearest, most precious portion of Scripture, and Psalm 119 specifically, their dearest. And in moments of ex, in extremist, they would quote it, um, whatever fit. So it's interesting how distant we are today. Now, on the other hand, they had a bigger need to, Today we have the Word of God so accessible, we all have one in our pockets, so to speak, and there's also information appliances which allow, it to, allow us to search it on every conceivable thing. Nevertheless, one of the thing, themes of the Psalm 119 is rejoicing in the Old Testament. Obviously it's the Old Testament, but let's not lose sight of that. Many people, especially Christians, New Testament Christians, tend to dismiss the Old Testament in general. Big mistake. 
Big mistake. And this psalm, I think, demonstrates what a big mistake that is. Not because of any discoveries that you might find, like we do all through the psalms, we find interesting little discoveries like we did in 69 and elsewhere. No, not for that reason. Just to discover the passion, the commitment, the devotion of, of uh, people in the Word of God. And the Word of God here implies the Old Testament specifically. The to word Torah, the law, and other equivalent terms which we'll explore in a minute, are ref we re don't refer to just the Ten Commandments, for an example, or just the five books of Moses, as it, means, as it would be used denotatively. But the entire revelation of God is found in the Old Testament Scriptures. So when it speaks of the Torah, it's not speaking of the books of Moses, it's speaking of the Word of God. And I'll show you why in a minute. But let's bear in mind that the Old Testament was the only Word of God possessed by the early church until finally, ultimately, before, by the end of the first century, the letters of Paul and other things were circulated with the, with the weight of Scripture and became, uh, but the, uh, it became our Bible. But in the early, part, early days of the church, and the, and the church as it shows up in the book of Acts, for example, essentially was the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. And uh, so let's keep that in mind. And uh, let's give you some examples of, as you read your Bible, you remember Peter, he quotes Psalm 69 and also Psalm 109 in order to receive guidance when they had the election to, to elect Matthias to replace Judas and the disciples in Acts chapter 1. And they, they, he, he quotes from Psalms to, to give his guidance. He quotes from Joel to explain Pentecost when the tongues of fire and all, when he goes to explain that in, in his first sermon in Acts chapter 2. And he uses Psalm 110 verse 1 to explain the resurrection. This all occurs in Acts chapter 2. But again, his, his drawing of the scripture is from the Old Testament, specifically the book of Psalms. Stephen starts with Genesis 21 and go, finishes with Isaiah 66 and on the way quotes from Exodus, Deuteronomy, and Amos when he def this young man defends himself before the august Sanhedrin in Acts 7. And all these episodes as we read the New Testament we sort of take for granted are quotes from the Old Testament. That was their Bible. And uh, Philip, he takes Isaiah 53 to lead the Ethiopian treasure to Christ. Again, drawing on the Old Testament. And Paul, uh, Isaiah 49 for his Gentile mandate. And uh, he uses Habakkuk 2.4 uh, to be the core verse to his trilogy on Habakkuk 2.4. We, we know as the book of Romans, book of Galatians, and the book of Hebrews. And, uh, and Paul quotes from all kinds, I didn't even try to list all these uh, uh, verses throughout the Old Testament to encourage the, 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 uh, the leaders that he was constantly corresponding with through his epistles. And James, when he's heading up the council in Jerusalem, and he finally resolves that council by quoting from Amos 9 as the authoritative quote that resolved several issues that was before the council. Now there's another misconception that tends to overlay the New Testament reader, and that's this whole issue of law versus grace. Gee, the Old Testament was law, we're under grace. Be careful with that one. Widely misunderstood. Because the law sets God's standard, and grace enables us to meet it. There are two sides of the same coin in a sense of speaking. And Romans 8, of course, hits that head on. Let's understand that the psalmist delighted in God's law. It wasn't an onerous, penalizing segment of Scripture. It was something he delighted in. Let's understand that and understand why he did. Uh, 
Paul emphasizes, this is Paul now, he's not opposed to the law. In fact, he's the one that explains that the law was holy, just, and good, and spiritual in Romans 7. And uh, so the law, when we, there's a number of terms we're going to see. The word Torah, which is translated literally law or more broadly instruction, comes from a verb which means to direct, guide, aim, shoot forward. The word Torah implies a rule of conduct. That's basically, we're going to find that term. All, but there's other terms that are almost equivalent. The way. And uh, Jesus said himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And by this designation, we are to understand that this is a rule of divine providence and of our own obedience. And the Lord Jesus himself identifying with that. We'll find the word way. Testimonies. We speak all through the Psalm 119, we're going to run into testimonies. This is derived from a word signifying to bear witness, to testify. The ark, the two tables of stone, the tabernacle, were all called by this term, by testimonies, because they were witnesses of God's habitation among his people. The ark of the testimony is another term for the ark of the covenant. And the tent of meeting or the tent of testimonies is the tabernacle and so forth. The word testimonies is used connotatively here. The term commandments, distinctive term. How is it different from the law? It signifies, the word actually signifies lodged with us in trust. Interesting enough. At the root, it means to, co to command, ordain a word given in authority. For example, as, such as God gave to Adam about the tree, or he gave to Noah about the ark, or the Ten Commandments that were given to Moses. In other words, something given in trust is what the term commandments actually implies. Then there's the term precepts. All through the Psalm 119, he will speak of precepts. This term is not found outside the book of Psalms, interestingly enough. It means something prescribed for us, not left in indifferent. As appointments of God, they have to do with conscience. Man, as an intelligent being, must meet them. Precepts. And so it means something, again, entrusted to man, such, almost a synonym for a command, commandment. The Word. We speak of the Word of God. Words are the clothing of our thoughts. And Jesus came to reveal God's thoughts, mind, and so forth. This term where sometimes is rendered sayings in Psalm 119. The Word, it's, the word, it's, it's God's declaration of His mind the revelation of his will, it's the announcement of his purpose, the word. And that comes from the, the, Greek, the Greek form of the Hebrew term is logos, which is one of the titles of Jesus Christ, especially in the writings of John, his gospel and also his epistles. And uh, another term is we'll see the judgments of God. What is that distinctive of? Well, those are the judicial pronouncements of the law, a word signifying to govern, to judge, to determine judicial ordinances, Legal sanctions are implied, and God's judgments are framed in infinite wisdom, and by them man must be judged and must judge and be judged. And so, and righteousness. All divine judgments are righteous, and the divine word is all holy, just, and good, and provides the only authentic rule and standard of righteousness uh, uh, to, to, for, for man. So, the... Uh, and the statutes literally is a term that means what is engraved. We use that term meaning laws as synonyms almost. Technically, it means what's engraved and implies a law carved in stone or on metal. It implies something that's fixed, determined, and of perpetual obligation is what the implying, implication is 
of a statute. And of course, faithfulness runs all through here. As a noun, the designation is the equivalent of truth. Faithfulness and truth are almost essentially synonyms. Jesus declared himself to be the truth, the manifestation of God's unchanging faithfulness. So these terms, we tend to use sloppily, and in a sloppily or connotative sense, they're almost synonyms, and yet each one's slightly distinctive. So we want to be so we have the law, the way, testimonies, commandments, precepts, word, judgments, righteousness, statutes, faithfulness. There are ten different words that we would loosely say the word of God or his truth or his law or whatever. But when it says law, it doesn't mean ten commandments. It connotatively means any of these things. These are all facets, if you will, of a, of a, of a common jewel. Now, the law to unsaved sinners is an enemy. Because it announces their condemnation, and the law cannot save them. We tend to emphasize that so strongly in the New Testament that we tend to dismiss it or not disregard it in broader terms. To unsaved sinners, it's the law. To legalistic believers, the law is a master that robs them of their freedom. And many, many people who get into it a little bit and then get enamored with the Old Testament ceremonies and so forth... Uh, often find, or find themselves robbed of their freedom. That, that's, I encourage them to, re, to focus on the book of Galatians, the book of Romans. To spiritually minded believers, the law is a servant. That may surprise you. Why? Because it helps us see the character of God and the work of Christ. You really won't understand the work of Christ if you, unless you understand our condemnation in the law that he has freed us from. But we want to be careful that in our zeal, to, to understand Christ, we don't crawl back under the law. And that's what Paul really hammers away in Galatians and elsewhere. And so, this psalm is going to hammer away at the attributes of God, that he's gracious, that he's true and, and the truth, that he's righteous, that he's good, that he's trustworthy, he's eternal, and, and eternal light, that God is light. The attributes of God are, are all through this psalm. We're going to see it from so many different sides. And all through this psalm, there is practical help. The psalm is not a theoretical, theological piece of work. It's a practical how-to-do-it kind of thing. It keeps us clean, gives us joy, guides us, establishes our values, helps us pray effectively. If we really study this psalm, it will it change the way we live day to day. The way we walk, it'll change your devotional patterns all, all the way around. It will give us hope. It'll give us peace. Gives us freedom. It brings us the best kinds of friends. It'll find and fulfill our purposes. It'll strengthen our witness. It resuscitates us. And this obviously is just a quick skimming of some of the practical implications. But I want us to get into the psalm with a broad horizon and realize there's far more than, than here than meets a casual review. And we're going to be sort of, we're going to be forced because of time to be a casual review. I hope we won't be suffering too badly because of that. So we have 176 verses. And with the exception of just two verses, every one of them is a praise to God. That's astonishing to find 174 different ways to praise God. You're going to, you're going to skim through them today, tonight. And uh, now it's not our intention to dwell on each verse. As I say, Spurgeon's classic work spent 400 pages just on this psalm. We don't plan to do that tonight. Now, they're alphabetical in the Hebrew alphabet. And the first letter of the Hebrew 
alphabet is an aleph in its original form. It was it intended to look at the, like the head of an ox, sort of like a long you know uh, a longhorn steer sort of thing. And uh, this this quatrain, the, or I say uh, octrain, the eight verses uh, speak of God being undefiled and the blessedness of God. Now, if you see it in the Hebrew, you'll discover that the each uh, of the verses starts with an aleph. And that's true of, of these eight. None other, each one we go through will start with the next letter of the alphabet. That's why it's called an acrostic and very skillfully, carefully designed and certainly is a mnemonic to help memorize. Doesn't help you memorize it in English, however. <laughs> okay. But let's just jump in here. The word blessed, it opened, this, the, the uh, Psalm 119 opens with a benediction. And the word blessed appears in the first two verses, then does not appear in the rest of the psalm. It's going to open with a benediction, and it's going to close with a warning. Blessed are the undefiled in the way. See, there's the way. What do you mean by the way? Well, that's the, very, that's the way Christianity was spoken of the book of, in the book of Acts. Are you in the way? Are you a Christian? Who walk... In the law of the Lord. There again, see, suddenly we have, we're confronted with two terms that are not exactly synonyms, but they're both connotatively related. Who walk in the law of the Lord. Okay. Blessed are they that keep his testimonies and that seek him with the whole heart. Well, right away, as we, you know, each one of these verses would be easy to spend an hour on and sermonize. And that, that's what makes going through the commentaries so tedious because most commentators really try to take each one and Blessed are they that keep his testimonies. Keep them, not just know them. And they that seek him with a whole heart, not half-heartedly. Seeking God is more than reading and studying the Bible. That becomes a shock because we try to encourage people to do that. That's what the Institute's all about is to get people to study, but do more than just study, unfortunately. We have what I sometimes call the 11-inch problem. Getting it from the head to the heart. Okay. And uh, seek him with a whole heart, not half-heartedly. They also do no iniquity. They walk in his ways. I want to ask for a show of hands. How many of you do no iniquity? They walk in his ways. Thou hast commanded us to keep thy precepts diligently. Ooh, that's a heavy word. Diligently. I don't think any of us can step up to that descriptor. I don't think any of us are adequately diligent in regard to these things. So this, is, this, is, this, this cuts right through it. This reaches right where we live. Oh, that my ways were directed to keep thy statutes. Then shall I not be ashamed when I have respect unto all thy commandments. I will praise thee with the uprightness of heart when I shall have learned thy righteous judgments. I will keep thy statutes. Oh, forsake me not utterly. So that's the first quatrain, the first octave, if you will, of this um, psalm. So we're 122nd through the study already, okay? The next letter in the Hebrew, uh, the second letter in the Hebrew alphabet is Beth. And the word, the Hebrew alphabet and we're not going to get into this too much tonight because it will derail us, but every letter in the Hebrew alphabet is not only pronounceable, but it also carries concept. The first one is the first, 
And since it means an ox, it means strength or service. Beth means house or home. And Bethlehem, the house of bread. Bethel, the house of God. Beth is the word for house. And the letter Beth means house. It originally was written like a little line on a TP, but then it becomes RB later as through evolution. But, but uh, in the, the way it's written in, in current Hebrew, which is since Babylon. Before Babylon, they wrote it a little differently. But, um, but the, anyway, this is the letter Beth. And uh, the theme of this group of eight is to make your heart a home for the word of God. That's going to be the concept that's going to underlie the next eight verses. And again, if you see this in the Hebrew, I'm not going to do this each letter, but just to give you the flavor of it, every word, every line starts with a bet. Okay, so this thing is very skillfully organized, not just in concept, but in structure. And uh, Beth, wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? Very typical Socratic method of teaching, to ask a question, beg the answer. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? That's a very key question. What is the way that a young man should keep his way clean? How do you go about doing that? That's a challenge that few of us meet adequately. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? Here's the answer. By taking heed thereto according to thy word. It's interesting that our young people are taught everything in school except what they need to know. That the Bible is against the law in this country since 1963. And you can measure the decline of the United States in every measure. Every social measure you want. I can I actually have a collection of 84 measures. They all were improving until about 1962-63. And then they take a disastrous plunge. That was the year that we started outlawing Bible and prayer in schools. And this country has gone down the skids ever since. And the rate of its decline is accelerating in every which way. Financially, military, every which way. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Psalms. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. Or you can call us on 1-800-KHOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word. Music